0: Welcome. Welcome.
1: welcome, 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 welcome to the Vanderbilt
0: Internal
1: Medicine Podcast. This podcast is made by and for our internal medicine residents to enhance their educational experience. The content, while edited by residents, is not verified by those or speakers, and they are not content experts on these topics. The content provided by the podcast is not intended and should not construe as medical advice, should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. We attempt to avoid use of opinion that all opinions presented are our own and are not representative of the air. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy podcast welcome, welcome back, back to the, the vanderbilt, vanderbilt internal, internal medicine podcast we're here with gabe sandoval one of the chief residents
0: thanks for having me on grew up suburbs of dallas in a town called garland uh went to the university of texas hook'em horns mm. going to the sec feels like we're going joining the dark side <laughs> um went to med school ut houston um and you know really fell in love in houston i was down there and then came up here moved for the first time out of texas came to vanderbilt loved it did residency here and now i'm one of the chief residents here at vanderbilt and uh loving every day of it working with you guys interested in gi and so applying right now other than that married my wife's a teacher i got a two-year-old daughter lily at home and then another fetus on the way
1: (laughs) (laughs) wow thanks for taking the time to meet with us
0: no my pleasure. Let's go to our first case. Over here, we had a really cool case. 76-year-old dude came out with undifferentiated shock from outside hospital and was very appropriately resuscitated and worked up by our residents here at Vanderbilt. And so we had a good discussion about the different types of shock, especially for these new interns, um, putting them into different buckets and how you think about them. And so, right, going briefly over the different types of shock, the ones I think about are First, hypovolemic shock, then you have cardiogenic shock, obstructive shock, and distributive shock. So, this guy came in, there's not much history, although it sounds like from the outside hospital that he was febrile. They're considering possibly sepsis as the cause of a shock. So, we went through the different types of shocks. So, remember with hypovolemic shock, your wedge pressure is going to be low. We don't put in swans and everyone anymore, so that's, you're not necessarily going to have that information, but they'll be hypovolemic, right? Hypovolemic shock. Cardiac index is going to be low. And your SVR, your systemic vascular resistance, is going to be high. So you would not necessarily assume that these patients are going to be very dry or have great pulses if they're in significant shock, right? The next you have cardiogenic shock. Their wedge pressure is going to be maybe normal, but usually high, right? They're not pumping forward. And they're having a lot of JVD, and it's backing up. The flow is backing up the rest of their system. Their cardiac index, by definition, will be low. And their systemic vascular resistance will be high because they're trying to maintain the pressure, right? Mm-hmm. They will be cold on physical exam. And so that is a good differentiating physical exam to do.
1: So for all the new interns, could you explain a little bit more about what you mean when you say the wedge pressure?
0: Wedge pressure. So just as a little bit of history for officially the like new interns, back in the day before I was a resident, for patients who came in with shock, who were in the ICU, pretty much everybody got a swan gan's catheter place so it's a central line that you place and then you can put a transducer in and wedge that transducer into the pulmonary capillaries and so that's a wedge pressure if we you measure the pressure there they used to do this for everybody in the CCU they still do it all the time cuz it's been proven to benefit patients in the cardiac patients with shock but in the medical ICU Mickey you will not generally see this done anymore cuz it doesn't necessarily improve outcomes But so these studies were all done on like historical data back when swans used to be put in on everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's how they got to these numbers and helps you with differentiate your different types of shock. So wedge pressure, as I said before, is when you wedge the transducer into the pulmonary circulation, that is your wedge pressure. You'll see it written down as PCWP pulmonary capillary wedge pressures.
2: Gabe, I had, a, I had a quick question too, just coming off my ICU block. I think in this morning report too, Dr. Campbell made a good point about the physical exam findings are important when you're assessing someone for their type of shock. Could mm-hmm. you take us through some of the important things on exam that we'd be
0: looking for? So your bedside exam for anyone, especially for interns, for someone's coming with shock, I think the first thing you need to do is just touch the patient. When you touch the patient in their hands or their feet, And if they are legitimately cold, I'm not saying like, oh, you had your hand out of the bed and it's a little cold right now. I mean, cold and clammy, not perfusing, then that automatically right there helps you differentiate your shock. That is therefore not a distributive shock because that would be a warm patient. Therefore, could be a cardiogenic shock because they're cold and clammy. Mm -hmm. If they are warm, then you're thinking more of a distributive septic type shock. There's crossover between these shocks, and so you can't. Sometimes there's gray areas. Mm-hmm. But if you had a cold, clammy patient, think of a cardiogenic shock. A warm patient, you're thinking more of a distributive, septic type shock.
1: Do you have a particular spot that you like to check, Gabe? Mm-hmm. I feel like I've often been told not to check fingers toes but to make sure that I'm feeling a little more proximally, like shins just to check for more reliable perfusion mm-hmm.
0: I would say so if I check someone's feet and they're cold I don't go oh my god they're up-, like so then I will move more proximally mm-hmm. and feel their shins I mean if you get up to like the shins up to the knees and they're mm-hmm. still cold I mean that's that's pretty good that's a pretty good physical exam I'm finding right there but I agree if you just randomly like put your hand on the foot and it was a little cold I would say now you need to do more digging right for anyone in shock, always look for an elevated jugular venous pressure. Mm-hmm. So remember, over eight is elevated. And so I I am not a cardiologist. And so I can tell you if someone's JVD is up most of the time, remember that this is one of the hardest physical exam findings for any anyone to do. And for hundreds of years, physicians have struggled with the volume exam. So don't beat yourself up too bad if you can't tell on some people. Mm-hmm. But... Is the JVP at the angle of the clavicle? Is it halfway up the neck? Is it to the ear? I, I think you should, your goal should be to be able to see that. And by telling mid-neck, angle of jaw, or ear, like that kind of anatomic description, I think is a good one to do for pretty much anybody. That's JVD. Otherwise, you should definitely take a listen to the heart. A caught cardiac tamponade before just by the physical exam. Very distant heart sounds. Hear a pericardial friction rub. I've never heard one, but if you were to hear one, awesome. And you could think of is this person of tamponade. One thing which recently came up and I'm starting to do since my time when I was a resident is actually checking if you're any at all concerned that there's cardiac cardiogenic shock. Actually checking a paradoxus is very sensitive to do. If you know somebody has a pericardial effusion, if you put a bedside ultrasound on somebody and see an effusion, then you should definitely do it. From my shock exam, looking at the patient just head to toe, making sure you're not missing that they have a huge laceration or signs of trauma. Make sure they're in the right ICU. Does this guy have bruising all over his back, and you're thinking he has a retroperitoneal bleed and needs to go to surgery? That's happened to me before. Mm-hmm. So, making sure that there's no just gross physical exam findings that would explain their shock. Back to our patient. So, yeah, so he came in undifferentiated shock, came into the hospital to the ICU. And on, you know, pressure was in like the ICU's 80s or 50s, still in shock, requiring leave of bed. Physical exam, he was a little disoriented, only able to answer questions like here and there, but obviously confused. Other than that, no gross abnormalities of physical exam, no elevated JVP, was warm on exam. So that's making us move towards more of a distributive, possibly hypovolemic shock, maybe, but less likely obstructive or cardiogenic, right? Mm-hmm. And he couldn't really give much history. All we know is at the other hospital, they gave him some antibiotics. That's all you know. They did a really good differential diagnosis of the different types of shocks. So they agreed it's probably most likely hypovolemic or distributive based on the exam. You get your labs back. He has a bit of an AKI you think. You've never seen him before, creatinine 1.7. His LFTs are a little elevated. He has pancytopenia. And so now we're thinking, you know, is this just due to severe sepsis that's causing the pancytopenia? And the liver elevation, is this just shock liver? Or is that actually pointing you to the underlying pathologist causing the the problem? And gets put on broad-spectrum antibiotics. Huge infectious workup scent. Everything comes back negative. Except the ID attending is like, we should consider a tick-borne illness in this patient. And the residents, I think, appropriately, were like, really, dude? Tick-borne illness? Come on, ID. This guy's sick. (laughs) This guy's super sick. (laughs) When is it ever tick borne illness that's causing refractory shock? They sent it Ehrlichia IgG, which was negative. And so the team thought, not Ehrlichia. But then the ID attending said, Did you know the IgG won't be positive right at the beginning? And so they sent it Ehrlichia PCR, which was positive. And he had disseminated Ehrlichiosis, causing his septic shock, and got a lot better once they got on doxycycline.
2: The old case of yeah. doxy deficiency,
0: yet again. As one of the former upper levels at the Vanderb- at Vanderbilt used to say is doxycycline is a drug for living people, and That's no right. one should die without a dose of doxycycline.
1: I do have a quick question. You might be getting into this when you when you talk about the the case a little bit more in depth, meningococcosis. But was it discussed? Like, at what threshold does a patient come in with an elevation in their liver enzymes, panic and they're in severe distributed or severe mm-hmm. shock? Just empirically starting doxy.
0: Yeah. So. Especially in, uh, so I think that discussion is different where you are, right? So, for instance, I trained in Houston, and there was not tick-borne illness there. And we did not necessarily give atypical coverage or doxycycline to people in septic shock. Since now I am in Tennessee, and ticks are, like, under your couch here, I don't know, they're all over the place. Uh, I think it's definitely something everyone should be thinking about. And you know there are studies that have been shown that like just because your patient doesn't know they had been around ticks or had a tick like a tick exposure does not mean they therefore don't have a tick borne illness right here especially when they're outside and getting exposed all the time they don't know about it so I think especially here where it's so prevalent it's something you should definitely be thinking about I as a resident did not always do atypical tick borne illness coverage in my septic shock patients but now as an upper level resident and I can go on another story. My one time as a moonlighting shift at a patient with Ehrlichia meningitis, I now pretty much give it to anyone with that I think is sick. Taking that one extra step of, is there a typical infection that I'm missing to be thinking it on? Because I think oftentimes you put on some, you put somebody on vancomycin and you say, oh, there's nothing I'm missing. Well, that's not true, right? Gabe, what
2: are some of the findings that led the team to make the diagnosis?
0: Things that can clue you into a possible like tick-borne illness especially are elevated LFTs and thrombocytopenia can often be seen with tick-borne illnesses too. This case is a little weird because the patient had pancytopenia and actually they almost went down the rabbit hole of like HLH and bone marrow involvement or something. But just remember tick-borne diseases can affect your bone marrow. That's how it causes that thrombocytopenia can do that. It can also cause in your peripheral blood and cause destruction that way too. Elevated liver enzymes, thrombocytopenia in the geographic area of endemic you know, tick-borne illnesses. Those are the big things you can think of. He didn't have a great story for the tick-borne illness, like I said before, so the history is nice Mm -hmm. if they tell you they were camping and it's all textbook, a lot of stuff, but it often isn't. Time of year, definitely in the summer more, people are outside more, and they're interacting with nature more. That being said, now that the world is getting warmer, they are seeing the tick-borne illnesses pop up earlier, like, you know, a little bit earlier in the spring and a little bit later in the winter than
1: So Gabe, what are your thoughts on treatment for this patient?
0: So that's why tick illnesses are really easy and nice because it's like one thing, give them doxycycline in general. That's not always true, but that's in general. You can look up different sources how long you're going to treat the patient for. But it's doxycycline 100 BID, 10 days-ish like the CDC website says, you know, if they're really sick, you should be continuing it for like two to three days past at the defervescence in patients. So like, for instance, in a sick ICU shock patient, that might be longer than 10 days, depending on how they do. But in general, patients with are like, yeah, who get treated with doxy, get better within the 48 hours. And that's what happened to this, this gentleman. One thing I did want to say, which I always thought was the case, and I think we're always taught is like, you don't do doxy in kids. And that's just absolutely not true. If you pull up the CDC website on tick-borne illnesses, the first thing is a flag to try to make us unlearn that and says doxycycline, give it to kids <laughs> like if you need it for tick-borne illnesses. I know not necessarily internal medicine doctors, you don't deal with that, but I thought that was something new I didn't know. I was like, oh, you worry about their teeth, and no, you want them to live, so give them doxycycline. Um, so that's one thing. Also, pregnant people, give them doxycycline, right? Like, you don't want them to die or get disseminated erochia. And also remember sometimes that tick-borne illnesses come in pairs. Gabe, what are your take-home points for this case? One of the biggest learning points for this case is that remember that the not-often-thought-about tick-borne illnesses can cause people to be real sick. And your septic shock patient, something you should be considering, right? And making sure, having that mental fortitude to be thinking about that and look at your antibiotics and think about, this patient still getting sick and they're on vacant cefepime? What else am I missing? Oh, we don't have atypical coverage. Consider that. Ask those stories, especially when you live in tick country, about those exposures. But again, the history is not great or necessarily foolproof for ruling out a tick-borne illness. And that doxycycline in general is the way to go for all these patients.
1: Gabe, I hear you have a second case for us today. Do you wanna start talking about that one?
0: Yeah, really cool case that our residents had. Where a patient came in from an outside hospital with unrelenting substernal chest pain and history of ACS in the past, transferred him over to the Vanderbilt CCU. That's where the story kind of kicks off. Is a transfer from the outside hospital. Guy shows up on the floor, crushing chest pain, not getting better. Start him on a nitro drip, gets a bit better, and then they're kind of like, okay, what's going on? They get. In EKG it shows, you know, some electrical abnormalities, not a STEMI, not an STEMI. And they don't even know exactly what's going on with this guy. They end up cathing him. His opponent was mildly elevated on the mission at like 0. 0.7 or something like that. They Ended up cathing him and he has clean coronaries. Wow, really? Yeah, the cath didn't show any acute finding that would explain his symptoms. But what it did show, the LV gram, so sorry, people in the cath they shoot die in and can get a very rough estimate of your ejection fraction so the lv gram did show that he had significant heart failure like an ef of like 20 something percent not great because it's lv gram not you know super specific but really concerning and so they're trying to figure out what's going on with this guy and they get an echo echo says it's like 45 or so percent like okay well that's a big difference but also still abnormal in this guy so they end up pursuing a cardiac MRI to kind of split the difference, see what the EF is. What it did show is changes on the cardiac MRI that were concerning for cardiac sarcoid. Is a very rare, although when you go into the data, not as rare as we think, actually, diagnosis that was causing his symptoms. You go back to the history, He then he says, he, oh, I was having palpitations. And some of the things. And then you go back and look through the telly. Oh, he went into some runs of uh, PVCs and here and there, which made you a little concerned. And on his initial EKG, he did have somewhat of a heart block. And so there were these findings before, but the, the, it was the crushing substernal chest pain that took everyone's attention. Um, it was really that like in-depth workup that found this diagnosis. And he'd never been diagnosed with sarcoidosis before. Did he have
2: any other findings of sarcoidosis or disseminated sarcoid? So...
0: In the chart, no, he didn't. But when you look at the H&P, I and mean, I was talking to the resident who presented this case, he, and it does even say this on the H&P, that he does have a lot of scars. And you wonder, was, was that cutaneous sarcoidosis? Mm-hmm. They, 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 specifically in the H&P, it says, presence of several keloids and hypertrophic scars. This made us when we were talking with them in Morning Report, Dr. Dr. Christman, one of our great attendings here, asked, Well, have you thought about that could possibly be cutaneous sarcoid? And so we did some digging where there's several sarcoid lesions that just look like scars. Or like for instance, when people have tattoos in the past, they can get an infiltrative like reactive sarcoid to where those tattoos are, and it looks like a keloid over where their tattoos are, but you'd biopsy them and they're non-caseating granulomas. So it's possible this guy had cutaneous sarcoid, but we don't know because they weren't necessarily biopsied. And when we talked with the resident, we are like, oh, we didn't know that and no one really thought about it. And so this guy never got a biopsy proven diagnosis.
1: So Gabe, I remember sarcoidosis from medical school, but not specifically cardiac. Is that pretty common?
0: So, and all this is new information for me from this case too. I didn't know this too. I assumed it was really rare. So, There's been data on this that shows of people with sarcoidosis that have been diagnosed, like systemic sarcoidosis, around 20-ish, 25% of them have been proven to have cardiac sarcoidosis. But there's been studies done of patients with sarcoidosis who didn't have a diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis where they do autopsies of them. And in some reports, up to 75% of them have cardiac involvement. So they think it's very underdiagnosed. And the number could possibly be a lot higher than that 20-ish percent of people that have systemic sarcoidosis. So it's hard to say. Just to remind everyone, so the most common areas of sarcoidosis involvement, skin, eyes, reticular endothelial system, MSK, glands, then the heart. So, I mean, it's not high up there. Kidney, central nervous system. Pulmonary is the most common.
2: I guess my other question is, so this gentleman came in with crushing chest pain. Are there specific symptoms that would lead you to think cardiac sarcoid or is this mainly an imaging finding?
0: So, yeah, that was the weird weird thing with this case is that it is not very common at all that cardiac sarcoidosis presents as like a ACS types clinical picture. Usually people present with conduction system disease because the sarcoidosis is involved in their conduction system and so they have palpitations, lightheadedness, etc. Crushing chest pain like ACS is very odd. There's been papers that have shown that like tachyarrhythmias are like 30% of them. Heart failure is about less than 20-ish percent, but it can. Like this guy didn't come in with acute heart failure symptoms, but did have heart failure. And then rarely is it like CAD, you know, heart attack symptom. It has been described that the granulomas of cardiac sarcoidosis can invade the vasculature and cause lack of flow in a very similar ACS type presentation, um, so that is not commonly how patients with cardiac sarcoidosis present. But it was in this guy.
1: So, how did they diagnose this, Gabe?
0: There's multiple ways to do it. Now, with the intervention of advanced imaging, there's, they're going a lot further. They're going more away from the biopsies of the actual cardiac tissue to get that gold standard diagnosis. Like in this guy, he did not get a biopsy of his heart because the complications according with that, and they think, especially at advanced centers, that they can diagnose it with imaging. But the ways that you can do it, generally for anyone, if you look this up, anyone with a known systemic sarcoidosis should be kind of like screened for cardiac sarcoid with at least an EKG and make sure they don't have conduction system abnormalities, right? But the key diagnosis you can use, get the EKG, TTE, halter if they're giving you those symptoms and you're not catching it on the EKG. Advanced imaging was kind of like per clinician- suspicion and as warranted so cardiac mri fdg pet you can do and then again the endomyocardial biopsy is an option for that gold standard diagnosis but it's not necessarily pursued in everybody just like this guy
2: how did they end up treating this patient?
0: So for this patient, they gave them, you know, high dose steroids to treat the sarcoidosis as well as, you know, treating the heart failure that is a recur- a result of the sarcoidosis. And then as an outpatient, they get put on different therapies for systemic sarcoidosis as well.
2: That's awesome. Gabe, can you give us a few take home points for our listeners?
0: So this is a rare presentation of a not very common disease. So this isn't a always think of cardiac sarcoidosis and your are crushing chest pain patient. But you know, when you are doing your workup of your patient coming with chest pain and it's your concern is cardiac chest pain and you pursue the cath like you should, if there's abnormalities or things concerning for ACS, you don't see a lesion that explains the symptoms. Then you got to start going down, you know, using your mind to think about more rare things and working up the cause. And so, Thinking of other like advanced imaging that you can do, like cardiac MRI would be good. You're, you know, it'll see sarcoidosis, it'll see myocarditis. It can help you estimate the EF pretty well if there's discrepancies between your tests like this guy had. I think that's one of the pearls to think of is that when you're working up chest pain or this guy, when you found out he had new heart failure, yes, ischemia causes heart failure, but then there are other things that cause it too, atypical things, so keeping the differential broad. I think that's probably the biggest take home point from this case.
1: Thanks, Gabe, for all your teaching and for joining us here on the podcast.
0: Yeah, my pleasure, y'all, and happy to come back whenever.